The following podcast includes explicit language, not restricted to words beginning with F, S, B, and Q. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of April 13th, 2020. On this week's show, we're going to talk about ESPN televising horse, Major League Baseball's plan to restart the season by quarantining everyone in Arizona, and other dispatches from a sports world gone insane. We'll also talk with The Athletic's Ethan Sherwood-Strauss about his new book, The Victory Machine, The Making and Unmaking of the Warriors Dynasty. And the Hang Up and Listen Magazine Club will convene to discuss how I psych them, Bill Russell's 1965 account of how he gets an opponent's heads. Or will we discuss it? Maybe. Maybe not. Think about it. Hello from Washington, D.C., connoisseurs of the hang-up intro copy will note. I did not mention The Queen up top because I'm going to mention it now. The Queen, the only National Book Critics Circle Award winner, written by someone who has a strong opinion about the pass interference no-call in the 2006 LSU-Auburn game. It is out in paperback this week. It's got a new cover, a green one. It's pretty. I've got a few copies to give away. If you want one, stay tuned for After Balls, and I will tell you what to do. Joining me here in the booth Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. How are you feeling today, Stefan? Wait, wait, wait. I'm not joining you in any booth. We are isolated, Josh. Let's be clear. We don't want to give people the false impression that we are violating norms. The metaphorical booth. The notional booth. Thank you. Stefan, I'm admiring your little uh, nook there. In particular, you've got some accoutrement on your shelf. What is that baseball that's like a bookend on the left. Next to my daughter's baby shoes? Yeah, that's uh, that's an autographed ball by the key players from the Northern League who I wrote about in Wild and Outside, the little-mentioned book on this podcast. Oh, nice. So when you would go up to players, would you say, oh, you're a key player, you can sign on the sweet spot. You're not a key player. You're maybe a key player. Like, how did you navigate that? Actually, I just let them sign where they wanted to sign. (laughs) And as athletes will do, the guy with the biggest ego took the sweet spot on the ball. He was not one of the best players. He was not a manager. He was not the commissioner of the league, but he signed right in the sweet spot because he knew he was going to be great. We'll reveal in a future podcast who that was. Joel Anderson from Palo Alto, Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn season three. Do you have any autographed memorabilia in your home? No. The last thing that I had autographed was a business card from Jerry Rice and Roger Craig at the Houston Galleria in 1991. And being that there was a business card from 30 years ago, I'm pretty certain that that's nowhere to be found anymore. It's really sad, but I have the very good memory of being 13 years old and having enough confidence to go up to my heroes at the mall. So that was a big deal. That's great. I've only asked for one autograph in the course of my work. This was different. It was the end of the season. The book was done. (laughs) And I'm holding this one up now too. I interviewed Pele, who was sponsoring... Citibank, I think it was. MasterCard. You just had that at the hand, too. That's really impressive. (laughs) That's on my desk. Yeah. Nice. I love the fact that you don't consider the baseball from your book to be for work because the book was done. Anytime you're done with an interview, you just ask for an autograph. It doesn't count. It wasn't like an autograph because I like (laughs) loved these guys. It was an autograph because I wrote a whole book about them. All right. Fair enough. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. 
Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. So much is up in the air right now, looking ahead to the rest of our sports calendar. Will we have baseball in the summer, football in the fall, soccer ever? We'll talk about some of that later in our conversation, (laughs) but at least we've got basketball again. Well, sort of basketball. We've got basketball-like material. Only a month after the NBA shut down following Rudy Gobert's positive corona test, the NBA and the ESPN teamed up to bring us one of the first live sporting events in our socially distanced world. Sunday night was the debut of the NBA Horse Challenge, which featured four separate matches between a mix of current and retired NBA and WNBA players. Now, other than confirming the obvious financial gulf between top NBA players and their WNBA counterparts, I doubt anyone learned anything we didn't already know. Professional basketball players possess an insane amount of skill. Were you not entertained, Stefan? I watched about five minutes of it, Joel, and here's what I saw. I saw Paul Pierce miss a layup. I saw Paul Pierce miss a jump shot. And I saw Paul Pierce's house, which looked like a really, really expansive Italianate, pink, stucco, adobe. I'm not sure quite sure what it was. And he's got a nice reflecting pool. And Zach Levine has a batting cage in his backyard. So that's what I took away from horse. I was totally charmed by this, actually. I don't know if people were roasting it on on Twitter or something, but especially the last matchup between Allie Quigley and Chris Paul. Allie Quigley was the breakout star of this event, um, WNBA three-point champ. Uh, and they had like a, a good and, and fun, entertaining match. And they were taking horse in the spirit that it was intended. Chris Paul did this like one-legged shot where you have to turn around while you do it from the three-point line. I think it was a free throw actually. But Quigley was knocking shots down from like behind the backboard, from like, you know, the dirt around her cobblestones and I just appreciated the fact that obviously this isn't just like charity. ESPN wants something for people to watch, but the jankiness and the homemadeness of it, I think was fun and cool. And I don't really understand why you guys would be haters. I think it's a time when we all need to come together as a nation and a people. I didn't watch enough to be a hater. I have to say, I didn't watch enough to be a hater. And I I I am glad to hear that Ali Quigley and Chris Paul played horse the right way because Zach Levine and Paul Pierce were not playing horse the right way. I, I actually appreciated how Zach Levine did not play in the spirit of the game and just he was serious. did all of this like athletic stuff so he could beat Paul Pierce because he <laughs> wanted to win. Like, uh, respect. Shut him out. Yeah. Horsed yeah. him. Yeah. I mean, are you, are, are you really buying the jankiness? Because every now and again, I think they sort of, you know, you'd see – the camera is focused on them for your know, front facing camera. And then all of a sudden there'd be this panned view of them at the, at, you know, on their court somewhere. I don't, I feel like there was a lot more uh, production put into this thing than we you would think know. they made it look bad on purpose. Yeah, absolutely. I love this conspiracy theory. I think that there's like, Oh, they're supposed to be socially distanced. But- the second camera though, Joel, the second camera was like someone's daughter. No, but kid. it wasn't, but sometimes it wouldn't even be that. Like sometimes on it'd be phone. something else. I felt, I felt like but I, I could be wrong <laughs> about this. I, I, it's not like I'm saying that uh, people get coronavirus from 5g or something. I'm just saying that <laughs> it feels like 
it feels like there was some other production values going on here that we that they tried to make us believe that this was a much more homemade endeavor than it actually was. This is some deep state stuff, Joel. <laughs> so, I'm a little concerned. Tamika Catchings had her kid filming with an iPad up against the garage, but I think what Joel is suggesting is that maybe Tamika Catchings' kid was actually an ESPN cameraman and that the <laughs> iPad was like a $50,000 camera. <laughs> yeah, I felt the same thing about Paul Pierce's daughter. Clearly, that was not just an iPhone. Don't be surprised when the truth comes out, okay? That's all I'm saying. But on the whole, it wasn't a bad idea. Like, I think that the NBA tr- and the WNBA tried to give us something and it worked, but it just kind of felt like... It felt like one of these things where there's a you have a team meeting, somebody throws out an idea, and they're like, "Oh no, now we've got to do it," because they're just <laughs> they're like, "Oh now now we have to go ahead and do this thing," because this competition is only as good as the charisma and the personalities of the people involved. And so I just remember when Tamika Catchings and Mike Conley were going back and forth, and it just reminded me of really bad IG live shows that I've looked at where people don't have any chemistry and they don't know each other very well. And you can't pick up on a person's body language or facial expressions. And it was just a very awkward, stilted conversation throughout. It wasn't like that for like Zach and Paul Pierce. Zach Levine really, you know, put a lot of his personality into it. And you could just see that he was kind of a fun guy. But every now and again, you'd be like, oh, these people don't actually know each other. And it's really awkward. It's like a podcast where the hosts have no chemistry. But also it's it's hard to have conversations on Zoom because of the lag. And so you, they would like say something and not be able to respond in time. And so it was just janky in that way, along with the production quality being bad because of this, you know, Joel's conspiracy because they wanted it to be bad because ESPN obviously wants to broadcast bad images. And that, that they're was not allowed. We, I mean, they're, they're, we're not allowed to have all these other employees there. So they have to pretend. Anyway, I, maybe this, sound, this is going to sound crazy in retrospect. I already know. So I'm just going <laughs> to leave it there. So, Josh, wait, who advanced? to the semifinals and who do you like going forward because <laughs> this really is a sporting event and we should have a sports take here oh chauncey billups beat trey young um despite the fact that trey young was shooting on a hoop that was at most nine feet tall um and where the free throw line was maybe about 10 feet away from the rim chauncey still won and he was like making three pointers uh off the backboard with regularity it was very impressive and he had a nice court um, Did he have so, an indoor court or an outdoor court? Outdoor, outdoor. I think Mike Conley was the only one with an indoor court. And as the ringer pointed out, it's nice to know what a $153 million contract will buy you in terms of a gem. I think they could just play the rest of the NBA season in Mike Conley's home gymnasium. <laughs> it's really it's really nicely tricked out. Is his house big enough to quarantine the entire league, though? Great question. So it's going to be Zach Levine versus Allie Quigley. And it's going to be fast. I'm going to be interested in that one because will Zach Levine do his like hit the ball off the backboard and make a layup on the other side, which like maybe 500 people in the whole world can do. Um, Paul Pierce definitely cannot do that. I would have my doubts that Allie Quigley can do it. But will Zach kind of make make concessions and make it more of a shooting contest where Allie Quigley could pub- probably beat him given that she is the best, uh, one of the best shooters in the world. So that'll be interesting. Then the other side, you've got Chauncey Billups versus Mike Conley, and that should be a good match too. Conley, the thing about Conley is that he's uh, ambidextrous and he can shoot just as He was also cheating. Hand. I love the, that these guys were cheating so much. <laughs> How was he cheating? Because he was saying, shoot with your, he was saying like, shoot, shoot this with your off hand or your weak hand. And he clearly, like his right hand is extremely 
really strong, and so he's just <laughs> using that to his advantage. Well, I mean, that's just a, that's just a testament to his skill level. I mean, I mean, I guess the thing is, is that we had to take his word for what his offhand is at this point. Yeah. The other thing that I want to see, and then perhaps we can move on to UFC Fight Island or Major League Baseball, whatever the hell we want to call that. One thing I'm interested in looking at, and maybe some advice for Allie Quigley, she's married to her teammate on the Chicago Sky, Courtney Vandersloot, a married backcourt, perhaps the only one in uh, professional basketball. But she should incorporate Courtney into the game and say, have your significant other make a free throw left-handed. I don't know if these uh, other guys could compete with that, Stefan. What are the rules? That's the question. It's all about pushing boundaries. We need to be thinking outside the box in this new sports world. Speaking of which, Stefan, you wanted to do an entire special emergency podcast about Major League Baseball's insane plan to quarantine everyone in Arizona. Your thoughts? It's like one of the most insane things I read. Go go read Jeff Passan's st- first story for ESPN last week. Every sentence in that story was insane. And every thought that baseball officials are having about how to pull this off. And you can imagine, like, every league has to be doing this right now. They have to be coming up with contingency plans. It's like every business in America is doing this right now. How do we reopen colleges? What do we do about, you know, fast food restaurants? What do we do about Major League Baseball? So you have to come up with these bizarro plans to restart business and get the economy moving again. But this baseball thing was insane. The depth of the steps that would be required to literally create like a biosphere for players, umpires, coaches, managers, front office people, media, grounds crews, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, television, just boggles the mind. To think that these leagues are realistically thinking, hey, we can pull this off because we need to, or they're thinking we need to do it for the good of the country, is just bizarre to me when the obvious reality is we're going to be playing baseball in July or August and probably shouldn't be for everyone's well-being. So, Joel, the uh, plan would include all 30 teams playing with no fans in the Phoenix area. Everybody would be sequestered at local hotels and could only travel to and from the stadium. There would also be rule changes, electronic strike zone, so the plate umpire could maintain sufficient distance from the catcher, seven-inning doubleheaders, players sitting in empty stands six feet apart instead of in the dugout. Um, this what, what could go wrong? Right. I mean, it sounds insane and bizarre because we're living in a world that is insane and bizarre. Like, we none of us have ever imagined anything like this. And so the <laughs> the solutions are going to be progressively crazy uh, the more we think about it. You know, I mean, if you're going to have baseball, if you're going to have football, basketball, if you're going to do anything else, if we're going to attempt to go and have live sporting events, it's going to look and sound stupid. Like when you when we say it out loud, you know, like if we, just imagine saying this a year ago. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to um, play games without fans there. And to the extent that we have anybody else, players are not going to be able to sit next to each other. But the reason it sounds crazy is because this is crazy. Um, and it also, to me, it indicates that they are going to get this done. Like, I don't, not, maybe not this particular plan, but some iteration of it is going to come through because I don't believe that these people who are used to getting their way, who are used to the money never stopping, are just going to sit idly by and say, oh, we'll just wait till the country is opened all the way back up. They're going to come up with something that is going to put these players 
health and lives in danger. And we just have to be ready to deal with that when it happens. We either have to call it out and say what what is going on and like, no, this is unacceptable or whatever. But I think that they're going they're going to push this as hard as they can to make something like this happen. So two things. Number one, Stefan, I think this is a useful exercise in seeing all of this written out because it does, I don't know if this was what the intent was, but it kind of perversely demonstrates how difficult and stupid this is by actually just writing it all down, mm-hmm. everything that would you would be required to do. But maybe, number. this is point number two, this is like when Martin Scorsese um, turned in a cut of Casino to the MPAA that had a head exploding. He knew that they were going to cut that part out and would be like, all right, we'll cut this out, and then you get your R rating. So, well, he never intended for the exploding head to be in the movie. They fell for the trap. <laughs> so maybe they're leaking these totally insane rules, and then when they come up with something that's slightly less insane, we'll be like, all right, you know, they're they're you know gonna uh, not p- put everyone uh, in a dome and not allow them to you know see their families for an entire year. This seems more sensible. Yeah, sure. It's not seeing your families as one exploding head, but this is like a hundred exploding heads. I mean, none of this seems feasible under any circumstance. Wait, why does I mean, it seem unless feasible? something dramatically changes in terms of vaccine, in terms of contact tracing, in terms of testing. And we're not there yet. And I don't think we're going to be there in June or July either. Wait, I have a I have a prediction. So Stephanie Epstein said in Sports Illustrated, she she quoted a guy a PhD in uh, epidemiology from Emory, who said, we will not have sporting events with fans until we have a vaccine. I think that's incorrect. I predict, and I I think this is what you were saying, Joel, I think that we will have sporting events with fans before we have a vaccine, even if that's a bad idea. I think think it's going to happen. I think that's right. Yeah. I don't think we can help ourselves. You know what I mean? I think that two sorts of people at play here, people that cannot afford and are not willing to wait for the money to start rolling in again. And then you also have, there's a whole, you know, world of people out there that don't take this seriously at all. You know what I mean? The people that just believe, oh, people are overreacting. This is panic. This, you know, we're having deaths that that, that will be roughly approximate to a really bad flu season. There are people out there that are still saying that. Those are the sorts of people that are be at the LSU-Auburn football game in December or wherever. And I think this is a good way to pivot to college football, too, because the pressure, when you talk about the financial pressure and the willingness to put some people at risk, and in this scenario, it's the players and it's the fans who really love this sport, are probably as great in college football or greater than in any other sport because there have been a couple of good pieces looking at the the interconnected financial imperatives here. The, the fact that college football generates so much money that it supports not just other sports at universities, but other activities as well. And, you know, you read these stories and they are very doomsday in their predictions. And I come away with two things. One is that this is kind of a comeuppance for universities, athletic departments that have spent every cent that's come into them because they don't want to be accused of profiteering and don't want to be accused of having so much money that they could pay players. So they've been building these $100 million athletic complexes and paying coaches contracts that are valued at you know nine figures 
to get around the fact that, hey, we just don't have any money. Um, we have all these other expenses. So now it has come home to roost in the weirdest way possible, in the most unpredictable way possible. And the pressure on universities to find a way at the big programs to find a way to restart the sport are going to be immense. And who are the most vulnerable athletes in America? They are college football players and college basketball players, players that have no unions and have no real recourse to push back against the demands of these institutions. But you make an important point, which is that all these doomsday stories, and to their credit, SI did mention this, they don't really reckon with the fact that a lot of the financial ramifications here and and the accounting is kind of fake because these programs are spending so much of their revenue on building locker rooms. We've talked about that a lot. And universities are not just their athletic departments. We don't, you know, talk about how the sociology department needs to be revenue neutral. Like, I think there's an argument to be made that, like, the state of Florida should not be spending a lot of money bailing out, like, the UCF football program or something. But these are unprecedented times. And if the question is, should we be putting um, these athletes and students in danger? Or should we just, like, absorb uh, a loss in revenue for a little while? Um, It's just not real that if we don't have football, that necessarily means that we can't have any women's sports or any other sports. That's like not the way it it works. Oh, that's the big lie here. I mean, and even the good stories that I read in the last few days fall into this trap by saying that the Olympic sports, the non-revenue sports, lose money for the university. They don't lose money. They're expenditures in the same way that dorms are expenditures and food is an expenditure and pro- and academic programs are expenditures. And sports uh, the, are, the framing are marketing is wrong. for schools. The, the framing is is completely off and that's part of that's part of the problem in sort of assessing the economic calculation of what when and, and what sports should return and on, on what basis. It would make more sense, frankly, to get rid of the $100 million in revenue from football and just support other sports because they are something that universities want to spend money on. Yeah, well, and consider who the sources for most of these stories are. They're athletic administrators, people that work in TV, people that have like an incentive to paint the, the, the financial dynamics in that way, right? Like they would never say, well, you know, instead of paying our athletic director $500,000 a year, maybe we should pay them 200000 or we could cut some down some of the, you know, athletic staff in some way. Maybe we don't need, you know, four, five different, you know, uh, analysts on our football staff, right, which costs a lot of money. They wouldn't say that. They'll just say, well, we're not, we, we got to figure out ways to keep the money rolling in. So I, I think there's that. But w- one one thing that I thought of in the middle of all of this, I was like, if there was ever a time for college athletes to unite and assert their workers' rights, this is it. Because you've seen that there are some coaches that are suggesting, um, Dabo Sweeney, Mike Gundy among them, that they would be willing to put these guys' health at risk and put them out there, right? I mean, they, they wouldn't say it explicitly, but they're hinting at it. And these athletes have an opportunity to say, we have no incentive to do that. Um, we're we're the only people that don't get paid in this equation. We're the only people whose health would really be at risk in this situation. We're not doing it. And I would love to see something like that, or at least people start thinking about that in this direction. Because, um, I mean, these guys, you know, they they have no incentive to get out there. They have no reason 
to put their lives on the line. And the people that are supposed to be looking out for them and their welfare, and these guys are going to these players' homes and tell their parents, I'm going to be looking out for your guy. I'm going to, I'm going to treat him like my son. They would not treat their son like this. And so I would love to see these players rally around this together and say, you know what? Hell no. Like, we're not going to play until school is back in session, at least. I mean, that's the thing. They're talking about having these guys play football before we even know if we can go back to school, which is gives up the whole game in the first place here. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Ethan Strauss, who we are about to talk to, uh, we're going to continue that conversation um, about his book, The Victory Machine on the Warriors Dynasty. And Kevin Durant, um, really interesting conversation. And we got more insight from Ethan about uh, the team, uh, about Steph, and all sorts of other stuff. If you want to hear that discussion and you're not a Slate Plus member, sign up. It's just $35 for the first year at slate.com slash hangup plus. Ethan Strauss's first year on the Warriors beat was the year Steve Kerr, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, and crew. Harrison Barnes, won their first championship. He's covered the team every year since, first for ESPN, now for The Athletic. His new book, The Victory Machine, The Making and Unmaking of the Warriors Dynasty, is about what the subtitle says it's about. Uh, There's a bit more emphasis on the unmaking. The central figure is Kevin Durant, who came to the Warriors in 2016, helped push them to two more titles, then decamped for Brooklyn last year after getting hurt in Golden State's finals loss to Toronto. Of that injury in Game 5, Ethan writes, This was the night of Kevin Durant's redemption and also the consummation of his Faustian bargain. For years, he'd wanted love and recognition from a fan base that wanted Steph to be the hero. On June 10th, 2019, Kevin Durant was finally their hero. It just so happened to cost him his Achilles tendon. Joining us now, fully tendoned, it's Ethan <laughs> Sherwood-Strauss. Congrats on the book. Thank you so much. It's a hell of a summary. And uh, I also agree. I think there's more focus on the unmaking because, at least from a literary perspective, uh, it seems that's what draws us when it comes to the NBA and when it comes to the great teams. I mean, you see a lot of excitement for this Jordan Bulls documentary, The Last Dance. You know, David Halberstam's famous Breaks of the Game is about the Portland Trailblazers after they were successful. For whatever reason, and I can throw in Shaq and Kobe as well, uh, that seems to what draws us when we look back. It's the personalities and why it can't stay together uh, rather than the great basketball on the rise, perhaps because that's an easy-to-consume product. And writing about it's like dancing about architecture or whatever metaphor. I'm going to start way up in the clouds. You're kind of already there. So yeah, you can, I'm, I'm there. I can join you there. In reading the book, it struck me that it's not about who, what, when, where, or even how. Not even how, Ethan. It's about why. And it's not about answering why. It's about asking why and not knowing the answer. In life, I think that's our most common state is asking and not knowing. Um, and and one of the big whys with the Warriors 
is about proper distribution of credit. Did they win because of Joe Lacob taking over from an owner who never won anything? Did they win because of Steph? Did they win because Steve Kerr brought something new to the team? And later, did they win because of Durant or could they have won without him? These are all questions you kind of ponder in the book. So why is it worth asking these questions if it's impossible to know the answers. I mean, that's very existential. I, I think, I mean, that's that's almost Talmudic. Thank uh, you. As far as what is the point, what is the point to uh, when it comes to struggling with these answers and we don't know them? To me, I just like to think about things and be as honest as I can. I think it would be a much easier book to package if it was like some of these sports books of a certain category, and I'm not trying to slight them or insult them, but they have a perspective where this is why success happened. This is the blueprint for success. Take this to your board meeting. Uh, this is what you can apply at your company. Uh, we've seen a genre of that. Obviously, Moneyball is a great book beyond all of that, but that's a lot of the appeal. It's this oh man, I can find market inefficiencies. That's why Billy Bean won. He found a market inefficiency and he found players other people didn't have. It turns out the truth is a lot more complicated there. And the reasons the A's won uh, don't just redound to that. Um, But it's a better story to package if you have one answer. Unfortunately, when I looked into the question of how the hell this all happened, I, I didn't have one answer. There was a lot of luck involved. There was Steph Curry on this incredibly cheap contract winning two MVPs. And while Joe Lacob taking over the ownership from Cohen made a tremendous amount of difference, even there, it was a little abstract as to what the difference is and what it means. And so... um yeah, I, I wish that there were easy answers. I just didn't find easy answers when I looked into it. I thought what it was interesting, Ethan, that you chose not to, and I think this buttresses what you're saying here, you chose not to structure this as, as a sort of conventional sports book. It's not a chronological narrative written in some distant third person about how this great team came together and how it fell apart. It's much more organic in, in the writing. It's much more essayistic in the writing. And to the point of dumb luck, I mean, what I what I love about the way you do this is that you don't shy away from these details. The the fact that, you know, the new Warriors ownership attempted to trade Steph Curry and Clay Thompson for Chris Paul in 2011. The fact that, that Draymond Green was selected in the second round after they had taken two other players before him. The fact that Steve Kerr wasn't necessarily the first choice to become the head coach of this team. I mean, a lot of it is total dumb luck. And the more we understand that total dumb luck with some, you know, residue of design to sort of quote Branch Rickey behind it is what makes teams successful or not is what really is at play here. Yeah. And it seems like the arrogance of light years or Joe Lacob with his chest puffed out. Um, it is so strong that if you brought these details to them and to him, their attitude would be, yeah, well, we would have we would have been great even despite this road fork where we took the right path instead of the disastrous path. Yeah, you know, if we'd gotten Chris Paul in that trade. We would have built a contender and a titan with Chris Paul at the helm of it. I do think that's the perspective of it all. And maybe it's important to have some of that organizational arrogance. But it is amazing when you look back on it how much it, there just wasn't there wasn't a plan in the way that you would think there was a plan and a lot of it was happenstance and a lot of it was dumb luck and i think we don't like that 
as human beings. We, we, we like to ascribe some sort of plan to the whole thing. Um, injuries are like that too. When teams have a bunch of injuries, often that happens because they're not doing a good job as far as training, as far as knowing when to rest guys. But we don't look at that as probabilistic. We say that it's a freak injury. It's freak. It's out of nowhere. Who could have predicted it? Um, we like to ascribe, uh, we often ascribe to luck uh, the bad things um, and some of the good things we ascribe to skill or to vision. It's some version of the success as many fathers, failure as an orphan, I suppose. So the most common way that we connect players' personalities to their on-court personas is with the simple narrative of obsessiveness leads to greatness. Or with Michael Jordan, obsessiveness slash psychosis leads to greatness. And you saw that with Kobe Bryant as well. With Kevin Durant, the kind of obsessiveness that you document and has been documented amply by others over the last few years, it's a different kind of obsessiveness and one that doesn't really seem to have a clear connection to why he's great as a player. Do you think that's fair? Not necessarily. I think that obsessiveness does have a connection. I think the insecurity uh, that we see permeate much of his public life has something to do with why he worked so hard to get where he got. Um, And that's not the complete explanation, but uh, there are elements to his biography how uh, peripatetic it was and how this is a source of comfort. This grounds him in a way. Um, it's a place where he has a lot of control, the basketball court. Um, so I do think that there is something to his personality that's that that has something to do with the greatness, but it also seems like we don't like seeing all of it, that we like an idea superficially of a story of obsession and how it connects with greatness. We'll laugh at Michael Jordan having cheated at cards, cheating an old lady at cards, and that's part of why he's so competitive. Oh my God, Mike. But when we actually get a full dose of the Michael Jordan-ness of Michael Jordan, let's say at the uh, Basketball Hall of Fame speech he gave, we go, we, we pull back. We go, Ugh, that's a little bit, whew, that's a little bit too close. We didn't want to see all of that. And it seems like Kevin Durant is very much that guy for this era where, where we have so much access to athletes and what they're thinking that we see some of why he's great personality-wise, but it also makes a lot of people recoil or want to withhold the praise because the insecurity is so palpable. Ethan, obviously, yes. Kevin Durant is a central character here. Your relationship um, with him is some a, a piece of this uh, book in the conversation here. Can you talk a little bit about when it became apparent, because there's a there's a guy that says Durant is a different dude. I like, you know, all superstars are fucking crazy, but like Durant is a different dude. Like when was that most apparent to you in like your relationship with him? You're like, oh, this guy is not like dealing with all the other NBA stars I've dealt with. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, I heard obviously that he's a different dude going into it. Um, I'd even talked to him a little bit about being a different dude, but I think it's just how he... Okay, I think one moment was he was complaining about... uh, He was complaining about what some random Twitter person was saying at him. And... I didn't know who the random Twitter person was. He initially made it sound like it was somebody with some clout or with some following, but it turned out to be, I don't know, Thunderfan6192, right? It was just some random. And Chris Haynes, a reporter at Yahoo, says to KD, we're all in the locker room, 
man, you're sensitive. And, and, and Durant goes, yeah, I am sensitive. What's wrong with that? And it was just something you don't typically hear in a locker room. It was a very different dude thing to say. And we didn't have anything to say back to him. You know, in a way, it's very that aspect is very healthy that he uh, knows that he has a certain emotional range and isn't ashamed of it. But it's not something you commonly see in the NBA. And it's fair to say the Steph better stuff really got under his skin, right? Yeah, the stuff, the stuff better stuff for people that don't know. There is a contingent of Warriors fans, uh, Andy and Sam. What's up? Um, yeah. That <laughs> that that have talked about. You know, I think it, it started off, you know, as sort of mocking LeBron fans, maybe, but then it seemed like it was weaponized in some ways by some other people that were not Andy and Sam. That Steph was more central to the Warriors' success than KD. Is that a fair? Act? Yeah. The yeah. rendering of it. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, that, that really got under his skin, correct? Yeah. Well, or he would just complain to media that we were trying to rile up Steph's fans in opposition to him. Um, and he was acutely aware of one guy's reputation versus the other guy's reputation. And in a way that I don't think Steph was, and it bothered him, but you always wonder, you know, we can blame Andy Liu uh, of Salesforce, a uh, major Twitter fan on a uh, major Warriors Twitter fan for Katie's exit. But you you always wonder if it just would have been something, right? It would have been that or it would have been something else. The bottom line is he was feeling a deep ennui that whatever praise was coming his way, it seemed like the void was unfillable. And we almost might be asking the wrong questions if we are uh, blaming Andy Liu for, uh, or myself, maybe, I don't know, for, for Kevin's exit. I think the the reasons were a little bit deeper than that, and maybe more particular to the era that we're living in. Well, I think that was articulated really well when you, you, you describe how Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, at the MIT Sloan conference last year, talked about how it struck him that so many players are truly unhappy and appear so isolated to him. And he might as well have been talking about Kevin Durant. I mean, you write very clearly about Durant's insecurities, his sensitivity. Um, you, you, you write at one point, he wanted to be feted and was highly sensitive to the praise or criticism his teammates received. He would knock down teammates publicly. And players sort of figured Durant out, right, that you needed to stroke his ego and apologize to him. And when you got into this very public fight with him, I guess him fighting with you over something that you wrote, you were pulled aside into the into the players lounge, which is no go territory for reporters typically. And Andre Godala and a couple other people wanted you to go apologize because that's what worked for them, because because they needed KD to be great on the basketball court. And you didn't apologize, obviously, because you didn't need him to not be an asshole to you. That was just part of your job. Yeah. Um, I think Andre, paraphrasing from my own book, uh, said something to the effect of, you know, hey, you're married. I'm married. Sometimes we just got to apologize for some shit that we didn't even do. You know, that's the way of the world. You got to go and you got to do that. Um, but I think it was also a fundamental misunderstanding from the perspective of players. Players, you know, they grow up and they're often the star of their AAU team, what have you. They are always in demand. People always need them. They have to become cynical at a very young age and know who the frauds are, trying to manipulate them and extract value from them. So they have this perspective of, you need us. You need us. And Kevin Durant's one of the greatest basketball players ever, so obviously you need him 
And it doesn't totally work like that, not for everybody. You know, Kevin was somebody where it was nice to have a good rapport with him. I enjoyed having it when I had it. He always had very interesting things to say about the league off record, but it wasn't a situation I felt where I needed to placate him and get back in his good graces or whatever it is I do was ended. It just didn't seem that way. But from the player perspective, Obviously, it's that way, and that's why I had Andre and Demarcus Cousins saying that I had to, uh, I had to make peace. One of the most interesting aspects of all this is the off-court competitiveness between players, especially superstars, for the ardor of Madison Avenue or for the respect of fans. And you write about how one of the big effects when Durant goes to Golden State is that Steph isn't the lone superstar and that hurts Under Armour because Steph isn't, you know, scoring as much. He's not the finals MVP. And then you have Durant um, as a Nike athlete, but he'll never be LeBron for Nike or for fans, no matter what he does. How much do you think for Durant all of that stuff was weighing on him versus anything that had to do with on court. Just this idea of trying to be marketable, trying to be loved as somebody who was not just a basketball player. I mean, I think it's huge. And if you're competitive as these guys are, and you have the kind of career where you're right there. I mean, if you remember Kevin Durant was saying years ago, I'm tired of being second, that gap between first and second is massive. It's massive. You know, you're either the face of the league or you aren't. Obviously, there's a strata of maybe five guys who are marketable and are famous and could conceivably be household names. But if you're the face of the league, it means you're probably the face of Nike, which means you're probably, you know, one of the, I don't know, three most famous sports athletes. That's redundant. But three most famous athletes in the world. And And to interrupt for a second, as you write, Durant destroyed LeBron in that first finals, was clearly better. And then after that, he still wasn't more popular than LeBron. He still wasn't the most popular player on his team. He still wasn't the number one guy at Nike. And that must have, I don't know if devastating is the right word, but it's like, you got to feel some way about that. Yeah, it's some, it's understandable. I, you can see it from his perspective because yeah, he's doing the LeBron playbook. Okay. LeBron gets his super team together. Everybody's angry at him down in Miami. You know, we'd never seen a team like that with Wade and Bosch and LeBron. But then they win the championship at Kevin Durant's expense in a finals where Kevin Durant plays brilliantly. And nobody cares that Kevin Durant played brilliantly in that finals. It's just they lost five in the five games to LeBron in the Heat. And all hail the king, LeBron, the best player. He's redeemed himself. That was the arc that Kevin Durant witnessed. And so I think he figured, okay, well, I get my super team together. We win the championship in dominant fashion. I win finals MVP. Obviously, now I'm the top guy and LeBron isn't. And it just didn't work that way. The rules didn't work that way. I think we understand why. I think that there's a slight difference between joining a team that's won 73 games and you know, just putting together your own super team. But those differences seemed, you know, relatively minor probably to him. And it didn't make a lot of sense. And frankly, I think the reason for why we we reacted that way has something to do with how badly we know he needs it. I think that's part of this whole this whole thing where we're just less likely to confer uh, praise and adulation on somebody who seems so deeply in need of it. 
I have a kind of a question here to, to talk about basketball for a second because I heard on your your podcast, Ethan, that uh, Miles Brown said something along the lines that uh, the Warriors are underappreciated dynasty along the lines of the Bad Boy Pistons, hmm. and you didn't really follow. I didn't. I didn't hear you follow up on it, and I just kind of curious to know if you agreed with that because it just seems like there was. A, I don't know that the Warriors won, but it just like they never got full credit for that run throughout the league. Yeah, I probably left that one linger from Miles because it's an interesting idea just because I don't know if I would compare the two. They just have such different identities where the bad boy Pistons, they had this identity and this cultural resonance, but they weren't thought of as dominant in that way or hyper talented. So it felt a little apples to oranges. And there's also this aspect of I don't know what history will regard the Warriors as we're still a little close to it. And maybe in the future we'll go, oh, my God, that 2017 team was the greatest team of all time, right? It just seems in the immediate aftermath, we're not as appreciative. And that might have more to do with the era that we're in than anything else. And I keep hammering home the the zeitgeist and the technology, but it does seem as though we are in an era currently where we would rather laugh and jeer at somebody for screwing up than we would want to praise and hold up somebody for greatness. We want to watch the guy slip and fall. I mean, you look at... What was the trope out of the 2016 finals? You know, from one perspective, the Cavs and LeBron make this incredible comeback from down 3-1, and Kyrie Irving hits maybe the biggest shot of all time, and they win a championship for Cleveland for the first time in four decades. And what are we talking about in the aftermath of that? It's that the Warriors blew a 3-1 lead, 3-1, 3-1, let's make fun of the Warriors. That seems to be the era that we're in. I don't know if we're more cynical. I don't know if we just have too much capacity to communicate with each other on Twitter or what have you, but it just seems as though we celebrated success a little more innocently in the not-too-distant past as opposed to right now. The book is The Victory Machine, The Making and Unmaking of the Warriors Dynasty. It's really interesting, smart, if you like Ethan Strauss like the book. If you don't like Ethan Strauss, you also might like the book. It's possible. Congrats, Ethan. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. In 1965, Bill Russell did an as told to confessional with Sports Illustrated titled The Psych and My Other Tricks. It starts with Russell saying he isn't going to look up the definition of psychology in the dictionary. I mean, dictionaries are nice and all that, but did old Daniel Webster ever have to stand there at the top of the key and define five sweating monsters rushing down at him? I nearly stopped reading there. Because Noah Webster is the dictionary guy. Daniel Webster was the congressman and secretary of state under Presidents Harrison, Tyler, and Fillmore, and they were not related. But I persevered, and I'm glad to have done so, and glad that we've made this the first selection in the Hang Up and Listen Quarantine Magazine Club. It was suggested to us on Twitter by former SI writer Chris Ballard, who was let go in the recent purges by the vultures who now own the magazine. Chris told me he read it a few years ago while combing through the Sports Illustrated archives. The candor, the confidence, slash 
shit talking, the depth of psychological ploys, Chris said. I knew about Russell, but I didn't know this side of him and found it fascinating. It's like a mix of Tim Duncan savvy and Kevin Garnett crazy. Chris said he had wanted to recreate the piece with Draymond Green, but alas, that never happened. Josh, we should probably start with some context. Uh, When this was published at the start of the 1965-66 season, Russell is 31 years old. He's entering his 10th year in the league. The Celtics have won seven straight titles. He's so good and so established and so confident that he must have thought, fuck it, I can tell the league my secrets and it won't matter anyway. There's nothing they can do to stop me. Yeah, this is interesting to read in the context of Ethan Strauss's book because the Warriors are a dynasty that fell apart. The Celtics are a dynasty that stayed together. It was a very, very, eight times very different league. Fewer teams. Um, The Celtics had a huge amount of star power and cohesiveness. There were not issues to deal with as far as, you know, salaries and salary cap ramifications. It was easier to have a dynasty then, but it was not easy to have a dynasty. And a thing that you mentioned, Stefan, is a thing that stood out to me is that Russell called out his contemporaries and his rivals by name. He spoke about specific strategies that he employed against Nate Thurman. I like, you know, Googled Nate Thurman. I was like, okay, yeah, Nate Thurman was still playing at this time when, you know, Russell was talking about the ways that the Celtics defended him. That to me was striking, Joel. And I don't know if that was particular to Russell or if it was just more of a commentary on the league uh, at the time, because these are tidbits that you're only going to get, you know, in a book like Ethan's that's written when something is uh, is over or years later. Yeah. And I think for the most part that Bill Russell, what he told us was generally a lot of nonsense in terms of like actually psyching out players because so if Bill Russell is going up to a guy who's not even getting the ball, how is that psyching him out? And if Wilt Chamberlain ignores it and says, that's not going to work on me, old man, it just goes to work. How effective is it? What we're hearing Bill Russell basically tell tell people is not him psyching out people. He's telling people how great he is. He says, I can make people go do things that they don't want to do. Of course you can. You're Bill Russell. Do you need to psych out Johnny Kerr, you know, in, you know, uh, generic NBA forward in the 60s? I mean, but the, the thing that I thought about, because I, I generally this sort of stuff, I'm psyching out players, doing mental tricks on people, you know, trying to get in their head. Like usually you hear great players say that and they're doing it and they're overlooking the fact that they're great and they're able to impose their will on games no matter what they say or no matter what they, you know, whatever sort of mental games that they're playing. But this is what I thought about. In the context of this era, like when it was even law that in many places, black people were not regarded as equals, Russell is asserting that he had some sort of mental advantage over his opponents, like a much wider NBA then than it is today. So I get why he was doing it. He was saying, you know what? I'm not just an athletic beast. I'm a dude that uses my mind when I'm out there. And so in that context, it makes more sense. It also is fascinating in the context of fans aren't really aware of trash talking in 1965. And Russell is 
giving what, for the time, had to be some really remarkable and candid insight into the way athletes played and what they went through. You know, 1965, you know, George Plimpton had done a few inside books where he tried to, you know, become a, a player on some teams to get inside locker rooms and, 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 and expose what the game was really like. But the notion of this sort of confessional by a superstar that includes things like really denigrating your opposition, that had to be pretty striking at the time. I mean, the only players in this piece that Russell praises are Will Chamberlain, Oscar Robertson, and Elgin Baylor. We're like three of the greatest players in the history of basketball. Everyone else to him was a nobody. And it does very directly go back to what you just said, Joel. There's a, there was a, a profile written of Russell in Sports Illustrated in 1963, two years earlier, by Gilbert Rogan that I'm going to talk about in my afterball. And that really lays the foundation for Russell asserting his power as a black man in American sports in the early 1960s, that he is unafraid and will take no bullshit from anybody. A really important piece of context here is about the journalistic world that this was operating in. Um, and I think we need to note, since we're talking about an old school Sports Illustrated piece, that um, Maven, the company that's running Sports Illustrated now, has destroyed a great journalistic institution. And they deserve to be shamed and called out. And what they're doing is awful. Um, you mentioned Chris Ballard, you know, Grant Wall also ge getting let go. We could go on and on, and maybe we will in a future segment about what's going on at SI. But the context here in the mid-60s is this was a time when magazine writers, um, a, a guy from Sports Illustrated, Bob Autumn, did this as told to, like, it was a big deal to get written about by Sports Illustrated and to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated. The power dynamic is totally different. Like, if this existed now, it would be in the Players' Tribune. Russell was at the top of the game. He had led the Celtics to all these titles in a row. And it wasn't just that he was you know, doing this because it, he was in a particular place in his career. And Joel's really great point about what this meant for him to be doing this. Those were all factors. But it was also, you know, he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. It was like the NBA preview issue. Like, Autumn had done a similar thing with Wilt, like, a few months earlier. Like, SI could get the players of that day, the greatest players of that day, to reveal this stuff because they wanted to be in Sports Illustrated. And SI also realized, Joel, that what was happening with black athletes was important and should be written about from the perspective of a black athlete like Bill Russell. Even in this piece, it's sort of hinted at in the As Told To. Russell tells this anecdote about his high school coach telling his all-black team to not get baited into fighting. If you get mad and start a fight, it isn't just a fight, it's a riot, and you'll be the ones who are blamed. Russell also has the freedom to attack John Wooden, not by name, but he goes after John Wooden. This is in the mid-1960s when UCLA was basically not losing basketball games. And that is a fantastic anecdote that he, you know, Russell just basically unmasks Wooden and the sort of old culture of authoritarian leadership. He tells this story about how they're at this holiday tournament at Madison Square Garden in 1955, and 
the UCLA team walks into the cafeteria and under Wooden's rules, they're not allowed to talk during a meal. And Russell's San Francisco team walks in and they're having a great time and they're talking like it's a big birthday party, Russell writes. And then Russell says, the game that followed wasn't much. The meal was one of America's great moments in sports. Asserting that power over this icon of the game was really a tremendous thing, I thought. Yeah, and I think history sort of flattened these three-dimensional people over time into a caricature because now you look at Bill Russell and he's the statesman of the game, very, you know, quiet, humble champion from another era. And if you look back at not only what he was saying, but there's an editor's note uh, in a later issue of Sports Illustrated about this, where the writer talks about, I had no idea if I was going to be able to get Bill Russell because maybe he's worked, you know, he's uh, uh, working at one of his restaurants. Maybe he's tending to his house. He talks about him in the way that you would think of an NBA superstar, which is something that like would not have occurred to me in 1965 that Bill Russell was this very famous person who would not necessarily, you know, <laughs> that there was that there were other things going on be- besides him just being a champion. That he that he was considered sort of out sort of the norm. That there wasn't this you know John Wooden esque approach to the game. That Bill Russell had his own approach that was a little bit different. And we we wouldn't know that today. You know, that's not something that we'd have to read a story like this to know that about him. And I just I even like hearing Bill Russell say cat. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's like, oh, I didn't know Bill Russell talked like that. I knew that Bill Russell said cat. Um, I wanted to get back to what you said, Joel, about a lot of the specifics in here about how he psychs out players maybe being in the realm of myth or self-mythologizing. There's one particular moment in here that I thought was just a really great anecdote. He says, the year before I came into the NBA, Neil Johnston was third in the league in scoring, and I was worried about him from the start. I wasn't worried about his shooting. Neil had a low trajectory, soft little hook, and I figured I could block nine out of 10 of them. But this created a new problem for me. If I did block them, Neil would surely change his style against me and come up with something I probably couldn't handle as easily. So I took the psychological route. I would let him alone just enough to keep him puzzled, block just enough so that he wouldn't get riled and try something new. I would keep a little mental box score and make sure the score came out in our favor or try anyway. That's a great story, Joel. I'm curious if you think that it's true. But what it reminded me of, and I asked Ben Lindbergh about this, is this idea of baseball players setting up pitchers. It's something that Roberto Clemente and Willie Mays did, Ben told me, or were reputed to do. And the idea is you look really bad on a pitch on purpose to get the pitcher to like groove you a breaking ball. Like you just, you psych the guy out or deke by pretending that you're worse uh, at, at a skill than you really are. And Ben was saying, I don't know if this is actually true or if it actually makes sense, but it's something that's talked about. And so I'm curious, again, do you think that this is true, what Russell is talking about with Neil Johnston? And also just as fans, I think we just like, it makes these athletes seem even more extraordinary than we know that they are. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's plausible, but then you have to think about Neil Johnston as a person who was good enough to be the third leading scorer in the NBA, that maybe he didn't approach the game that maybe that maybe he thought that he was doing something against Bill Russell might work, and but Bill Russell was just so much better than him that it didn't make a difference. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I remember watching vividly 
a video of Ed Reed saying that he played this one particular route all year long against Peyton, this, this one particular route one way so that when Peyton Manning looked at it on tape, he would think Ed Reed played it like this. And in the one game that he played against Peyton Manning, he played this route differently and gets an interception. And I was just like, yeah, man, a great player probably can do something like that because they're great. I don't know if it's merely that they've set, they're setting people up through faking them out is, is more just a testament to their greatness overall. And they can make plays that you wouldn't think that they would be able to make because they're great, not because they're psyching out another great player. But I don't know. I don't doubt that, that Bill Russell did it. I don't know that it happened in quite the way that he says it did, though, does that, if that makes sense. I don't know. That, that Of all the anecdotes in this piece, that felt really plausible to me, that Russell was so much better. And we really can't can't state enough how much better Russell was than everybody, almost everybody in the league at that time. He was a transcendental player yeah. defensively. I mean, he never averaged more than, I think, 18 or 19 points a game. Um, and they didn't record blocks as a statistic yet. It would be another decade or so before blocks were a stat. I think it was in like the mid-70s. Maybe Russell told stat keepers not to record blocks just so Neil Johnston wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't know <laughs> right, how many of the shots that. he was blocking. But with a player like Russell... They do have the ability to decide when and where to do certain things. Where another player would be, I blocked a shot, oh my God. Russell could pick and choose. And the paragraph before the Neil Johnston paragraph, Josh, he says he's got his own little game called Block That Shot. I can block only from 8 to 10% of the shots taken against me, even if I'm lucky. The secret is knowing which 8 or 10% I'm going to go after. To have that, you know, I think that just emphasized how Russell's ability was so great that while all this chaos was happening on the court around him, he was the athlete with such supreme self-confidence to understand his athletic abilities to the point that he could make these decisions on what to do and what not to do in order to help his performance down the road and help the team's performance. So one thing that we know that Russell wasn't being honest about is saying that he didn't want to be a coach, which he says very clearly and directly. What do I have to gain from being a coach? I've got everything to lose. He became the player coach of the Celtics in 66, um, the next year after this was written. The Celtics dynasty got broken. They lost that year to the Sixers in the Eastern Conference Finals, but then they won two more championships with Russell as player coach, and then he retired. Um, Joel, it's obviously hugely important that this is part of Russell's story, that he became the coach and that he was able, I think you can see from this piece, that he has a lot to teach his fellow players um, and his teammates. And it's completely unsurprising that he was able to be successful as a coach. Well, he psyched us out. He said he didn't want to be a coach yeah. and he ended up becoming a coach. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. He had, that's the thing. I was, he, obviously, he was in possession of a great basketball mind and that he could do things on the court or think things ahead, ahead of his peers. And, you know, maybe we, maybe he didn't get enough credit for that. But I would say that it is sort of the template for the, the great Boston athletes that came after this idea that they have like this mental, <laughs> uh, this ability to, you know, play chess pieces in their head ahead of the game. I don't know. You like, I, I didn't know that that started with Bill Russell, but the, the obnoxiousness of the great Boston sports athlete um, comes through in here. He's just like, well, I can just move these chess pieces around. I can make people do. What did, he said something in the piece that he's like, make somebody do something that they don't want to do. Yeah. Well, oh, no shit. Okay. Well, yeah, I would love to. I would have loved to have done that in sports, but it's just not that simple. Stefan, we should have folks email us at hangup at slate.com if they have thoughts 
themselves after reading the piece. And also, we're not going to give another assignment just yet because we don't have one, but just would like to hear from folks if they enjoyed this, if they'd like us to do other magazine reading segments in the quarantine. But I think this was great. I really enjoyed looking back on this, reading about Russell specifically, but also just like kind of being transported to another time and place. Guys, he said no pussycats, please, in there. The language, just marinating in the language. Yeah. The piece is titled The Psych and My Other Tricks. It was written by Bill Russell as told to Bob Autumn of Sports Illustrated in 1965. We'll post a link on the show page. If you have other suggestions for magazine stories that we might want to read, we're collecting them. You can email us at hangupatslate.com or find Josh's Twitter thread with other suggestions. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls. And the As Told To with Bill Russell was done by Bob Adam. And I think we should make more of a point of the fact that this was a piece that was written and constructed by a sports writer that, you know, this was as pieces of the Players' Tribune are, even though they're different. Um, those are written by someone as as well. And Autumn was a very good and well-respected sports writer. A major reason why the story is reads as well and is as good as it is, is because um, of the style that it's written in and the way that the narrative is laid out. And Autumn deserves, um, obviously, credit for that. He died of cancer at age 61 in 1986. In addition to being a sports writer, he wrote science fiction books. He wrote a novel called All Right, Everybody Off the Planet, which was about aliens sending a spy to Earth. He wrote a book that was adapted into the uh, comedy Stroker Ace, starring Burt Reynolds. Um, anybody who writes a book that gets adapted into a, a Burt Reynolds movie, obviously doing something right. Stefan, what is your Bob Autumn? In our conversation about the psych, I mentioned the 1963 Sports Illustrated profile of Russell, and it's a classic in its own right, too. It was titled, We Are Grown Men Playing a Child's Game. It is an artful portrait of Russell as a black athlete with bigger things on his mind than another ring, namely his role in America. Here's the lead. Bill Russell, the dark, gainly, and responsible man who is center and co-captain of the Boston Celtics, the perennial champions of the National Basketball Association, is without question one of the most remarkable athletes of our time, yet he regards his life up to now as a waste. I don't consider anything I have done, he has said, as contributing to society. I consider playing professional basketball as marking time, the most shallow thing in the world. 
The writer of this piece was Gilbert Rogan, who was 33 and had just had his first piece of short fiction published in The New Yorker, which he would do on the side for years while also rising to become managing editor of SI. The Russell profile was mentioned in Rogan's obituary in The New York Times in 2017, and it really does feel exceptional for its time. The date on the magazine is November 18, 1963, four days before JFK was assassinated. But more to the point, it was less than three months after MLK I Have a Dream speech at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, and six months after Bull Connor turned fire hoses on nonviolent marchers in Birmingham, Alabama. Rogan's story is a hallmark of the wide-angled sports writing, intellect, and progressivism for which Sports Illustrated came to be known in the 1960s. Being black was still the most identifiable detail about Russell, dark, gainly, and responsible in that order. But Rogan accepts with respect and without judgment Russell as a thoughtful iconoclast. After the lead, Rogan notes that Russell is not sullying basketball in any meaningful sense, but rather that the imposition of being a Negro at this moment in history is an obligation that cannot be met on the floor of the Boston Garden. Where and how he can fulfill it, Russell does not yet know. Rogan describes Russell as, at intervals, an angry, dissatisfied, and aloof man of uncommon principle, and is no less remarkable as a person than he is as an athlete. The quotes from Russell are expansive, and what emerges, I don't know if it was for the first time, is Russell, then 29, as a man who would suffer no fools, angry for damn good reason. Rogan gives Russell the space to be himself. It is not easy for a white man to understand or totally accept the vision of a black man. Skin is the hardest boundary, Rogan writes. The point is this. Bill Russell or any other black man like him does not want the white man's sympathy or indeed his friendship. What he wants is recognition and acceptance of himself as an individual, a black individual who can meet the world on equal terms and fare unequally according to his merit. One right we never had in this country, Russell says in the piece, we never had the right to be a failure or an individual. Why, if one black man fails, should all black men fail? That's what the struggle is about, whether it's through love, as with Martin Luther King, or through pride, as with the NAACP, or through hate, as with Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad. Russell, and this is 1963, remember, had no fucks to give. I would have loved to go to Birmingham, he says in the piece, but I'm not passive. Sometimes I think I have tendencies to violence. I've been mad enough to fight three times in my life, and each time I wanted to kill the man. You know the athletes I admire? Ted Williams, Jackie Robinson, and Sonny Liston. Those are honest people in the sense of representing themselves. Some Negro athletes don't show me much. I'm disappointed in them. They are politicians in the sense of saying the right things all the time. It's interesting that Russell doesn't name just black athletes. He names ones who tolerated no bullshit. But like Robinson and Muhammad Ali, Russell understood that he was obligated to be clear about race. He wouldn't have had the ability to say as much as he did if he weren't as good as he was. But he said more than a lot of stars who followed him in comparatively more accepting times. There's a paragraph in the story that I really loved. Rogan asks Russell about his scraggly beard, which was actually a goatee, and how it was a telling indication of the man because few professional athletes had facial hair. 
Russell says that maybe it's just my own little revolution. He talks about how he shaved it off when he joined the Celtics to conform, but because he chose to. If I had valued their opinion, I would have asked them, he says of the team. I wear it now to let people know I am an individual. I do think for myself, and I'm very opinionated. Contrary to popular belief, I'm a living, thinking, breathing human being. It's interesting because a decade later, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Lou Alcindor turned Kareem Abdul-Jabbar comes out later. And he always has sort of taken up the mantle of the activist basketball player. And I just wonder, I never, I don't know if anybody's ever asked him about this or if he's ever discussed it about how much of a role Bill Russell played in formulating sort of his, you know, his public persona and how he handled issues of racism and being a black man and a professional athlete in, in that America. Man, that would have been great. I don't, you know, I don't even think I've ever seen them talk. Like, in, you know, in the same screen, the same space. But that piece brought all that up. It made me think of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for whatever reason. That was great. It also made me realize that it was really like Jim Brown and Kareem a little later who got a lot of the credit for being these outspoken athletes at the front of the civil rights movement, at the front of, of politics in the mid to late 60s. And Russell here in 1963 is saying all this stuff is fascinating to me. Absolutely. This makes me want to read. Does, does Bill Russell have a biography, an autobiography? Because if there is, I want to read it now. Josh, what's your Bob Autumn? So at a uh, Slate virtual happy hour a little while ago, our colleague Dan Coyce introduced a game to all of us, which is that you guess a celebrity based on 10 clues. The clues start out hard and they get easier. There's no Googling, obviously. And you only get one guess if you guess wrong, you lose. It's a fun game um, to do if you're on one of these many interminable uh, Zoom meetings that have all been uh, thrust into our lives now. Um, and it's fun to do with a lot of people. But we're going to do it on a podcast and see how it goes. Um, to give credit here, Dan told me that he got um, the idea for this from a guy named Bill McMiniman, who does a trivia fundraiser that Dan goes to at a Catholic church in D.C. And Bill McMiniman is also doing free online trivia through the pandemic on Facebook Live. So if you want to check that out, it's called MCM Entertainment's Family Trivia Night. We'll link to it in our show notes. And so here's what we're going to do, Joel and Stefan. When you know the answer on Slack, just send me a direct message. Don't put it in our shared channel because we don't want Stefan to know Joel's answer and vice versa. But just as soon as you know it and you want to lock in your answer, just send me a direct message. Um, and for all of you folks out there, email me, first name dot last name at slate.com, you know my name, what your answers are and when you figured out what the answers were on what, what clue you got it on. And I'll send uh, a couple folks who send in that email a paperback copy of the queen autographed. So don't email in your answers if you don't want a book. I don't want to hear from you. I want something else because I already I have a both a hard copy and paperback version of your book. So I'm going to need something else. If All that right. To work. All right. We'll talk. We'll talk offline, Joel. Um, but yeah, send me an email with your with your answers and we'll do something. All right, Joel, Stefan, you guys ready? Yeah. Clue number one. And I'm going to do two of these. Clue number one. He was born in Newark, New Jersey. Clue number two, he is on the board of directors of Papa John's. Number three, in real life, he earned a doctorate from Barry University. 
In his first major film role, he played a character who got a 520 on the SATs after spelling his own name incorrectly. We have a correct answer from Joel Anderson. Number four, in the video game featuring his likeness, his character goes to another dimension to rescue a boy from an evil mummy. The magazine Nintendo Power ranked it the third worst game of all time. Clue number five. He once helped out his favorite rap group by reciting a classic Bugs Bunny line. The song that featured that sample made the top 40. We have a uh, an incorrect answer locked in from Stefan Fatsis. So Stefan loses. I'm going to give you... Uh, uh, the rest of the clues. And we can't reveal the correct answer because we want people uh, out in the audience to to know it. But all you, all you, it might help you to know that Joel got it and Stefan did not. Uh, number six, he told Larry David that his favorite Seinfeld episode is the contest. Number seven, when his future college coach met him for the first time, that coach asked, what rank are you, soldier? He responded, no rank. I'm 13 years old. Number eight, the year he was born, 1972, his first name appeared in zero stories in major newspapers. Thanks to his popularity, in the early 90s, that name would become one of the 200 most popular for American boys. Number nine, he dunked so hard that he broke the entire backboard apparatus in two separate NBA games in the same season. Stefan got it by this point. Uh, And number 10, the last clue. In his speech at Kobe Bryant's memorial, he said, even when folks thought we were on bad terms, when the cameras were turned off, he and I would throw a wink at each other and say, let's go whoop some ass. All right, that's your first uh, uh, celeb. Stefan, it's a brand new ball game here. We're going to do a second one. I'm coming back. Time for a comeback. All right, you guys ready? Yep. Number one, a sports columnist once described him as a source of perpetual wonderment, much like a force of nature so extraordinary, we stand in awe even as we say there's no way that could happen. He then compared this person to two other inexplicable phenomena, a rainbow and Dolly Parton. A rainbow and Dolly Parton. (laughs) Number two. Martina Navratilova played a major role in the most important moment of this person's sports career. Number three. In college, he ran a 4-3 40-yard dash. A 4-3 40-yard dash. Number four. Is that faster than Joel? It is. This is. I ran a 4-4-9. This is so. not Joel Anderson. Um, that's that's the one. That's, what I, that's I, the I'm one off checking. the board. I've never met Martina Navratilova, so unfortunately. <laughs> Number four, in an Ebony magazine profile, he said that he listened to rap music before games because it gets the adrenaline flowing, but that he actually preferred mellow music, jazz like Grover Washington's and Ronnie Laws's. And I listened to Peebo Bryson a lot. Peebo Bryson. <laughs> I forgot to just selectively repeat random stuff from my first round of clues. Peebo Bryson. All right, clue number five. He got his nickname because he was a bald baby. Bald. Clue number six. We have no guesses in from either Joel or Stefan. Clue number six. 
The first national newspaper story written about him said he'd grown five inches since last basketball season, and it's made him into a star. Clue number seven. He averaged a career-high 16 points per game in the 1991-1992 NBA season with the Sacramento Kings. Clue number eight. Still no guesses. His sophomore year in college. Oh, we have an incorrect guess from Stefan. 0 for 2 for, from Stefan today. Um, number eight. One for three. <laughs> His sophomore year in college. He had approximately 40 dunks and two goaltends. His coach said, I've already told one of the Globetrotters about him. Clue number nine. Stefan got it after getting it wrong the first time. So this doesn't count. Unofficial. Yeah, I shouldn't have made that first guess. Unofficial. I'm regretting that first guess. Clue number nine. Since he played in the NBA, there have been only two guys in the league shorter than him. I'm giving Joel a, a, oh. a second because he's typing. Wrong answer from Joel. Our final clue, number 10. <laughs> he beat his teammate Dominique Wilkins in the 1986 slam dunk contest. Oh, some, man. Some, on, people, some people I'm believe... embarrassed for you. Some people believe that Dominique was robbed, but he really wasn't. All right. Those are our uh, our pick 10s. I don't know. Dan, Dan Coyce told me there's no name for this. How do you guys like this format? Like it, man! I can't believe. Well, I can't talk about it. It's just I'm very frustrated. Well, we'll talk about this. We'll talk about this off the air. But uh, maybe we'll do other ones in the future. Maybe we can solicit some from listeners. Maybe we can get one from uh, from Joel or from uh, from Stefan. Um, and yeah, there it is. A I will I will say it's really fun to do in a live setting with a bunch of people on a Zoom. It's a it's a good game. I endorse it. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, you perhaps want even more hang up and listen. In our bonus segment this week, we talked with Ethan Strauss about his book, The Victory Machine. I think the spotlight shined pretty bright to the point of being painful uh, for Steph. And having been around it just as, I don't know, some sort of satellite in his world, uh, it was a lot. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. 
all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 